great God, you love the church. It's called the bride of Christ, and who of us do not delight in the brides that join our family? It's called the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you fill it with your presence. It's called the body of Christ, and it functions as a body caring for itself and entering the world as the presence of Jesus. We thank you for your promise that you will create over the church a canopy of glory, that it will be a shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. And as you spread your umbrella over the church, we thank you that your glory is spread in attendance. You demonstrated that glory in your son who came not to be served, but to serve. And we thank you, Lord, for the service of the Stephen ministers in our midst. Thank you that they are part of that canopy that is spread over our church and our community. And they bring glory to you in their service of you. Strengthen them with might in the inner person. Fill them with your love. Guide them by your wisdom. Uphold them by your power. Grant that by their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, they may help many to your transformation. Keep them faithful in times of trial and temptation, encouraged when they feel they're a failure, and uh, most of all, deeply in touch with you through all the disappointments that ministry often brings. And Lord, we as a congregation covenant to stand by them in prayer. We open our hearts to receive their gracious ministry ourselves. We thank you that we will have our feet washed by these who follow you in the great tradition of our master who donned the slave's apron to wash the feet of his murmuring disciples. And we ask these things through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. Well, if you hadn't guessed it yet, I'm preaching today, so <laughs> you may fasten your seatbelt. Uh, some of you may want to turn off your hearing aids, I don't know. <laughs> Our scripture this morning is uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. I harmonized the accounts in Matthew and in Mark because Mark adds a bit of detail that is not in Matthew. And in so doing, I fell between uh, two logs, as it were, and missed the most crucial part of the whole story. So it won't be on the screen, but it's the word son your sins are forgiven. So I'll add them at the end of the second slide. If you're following electronically, I'm actually expounding Matthew 9. This is the series we're in on uh, the teaching of Jesus and now the works of Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 9, we commence at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And now Mark adds this. 
When Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And now we go back to Matthew. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. May God bless the reading and hearing and meditation in his word this morning for his glory's sake. This man's life was like a vivacious stream burbling through a verdant valley bordered by tall green trees. The change began with such subtlety that he hardly noticed it. There was first a slight tingling sensation in his toes and then in his fingers. Pins and needles, he thought, nothing of it. Then numbness began to creep into his, his hands and feet. Next came cramping in his calves and in his biceps. His legs got weak and he found it hard to get through the day. And one day, about two to three months later, he couldn't even get out of bed. He panicked. And shortly thereafter, he was completely paralyzed. It was as if a light drizzle signaled a thunderstorm in the mountains and a torrent of rain came down the ravine of his life and left it log jammed like this. Interlocked so tightly that they didn't move even if you try to move them. Such pressure behind them that it was hard to fathom how it would ever get cleared. His hope that it was temporary and that it would soon pass was dashed as the dragging days turned into weary months. Desperately, he tried every remedy that was suggested. Aunt Mary's second cousin, twice removed, said that she burned a cockroach in the fire and ground the ashes up and swallowed them with a drink of camel's milk. So he tried it in the way of desperate people 
trying anything that might give them a glimmer of hope. In the end, all that he had left was despairing, depressing resignation. His friends were awkward around him. And he was so humiliated, he couldn't eat, he couldn't dress himself, he couldn't wash, he couldn't go to the bathroom, especially the bathroom. That was the worst humiliation of all. The placid, pleasing stream was now this log-jammed river course. One day, lying on his bed, he heard a hubbub in the street and heard snatches of conversation and figured Jesus was in town. His son was getting up to run off to go and see the great prophet, thought by many to be the Messiah, and he called him back, son, son, he said, go and get Saul, get him to get three of my best friends, get them to come here, I've got to get into the presence of Jesus. The 40 minutes it took for them to arrive stretched like 40 days. When they arrived at the house where Jesus was, it was so crowded that they couldn't even get near the door. And as they tried to shove their way through, people got irritated and snapped at them. So they put him down on the ground and shrugged their shoulders saying, it's impossible. And he said, the roof pointing with his chin to the stairs up the side of the house. The roof. They muttered as they wrestled him up those narrow stairs. If you ever try to carry something heavy up narrow stairs, you will know that it was a very hard chore. And reluctantly, they carried him up. Find something. Dig. And so they had to run to find implements, and one of them ran to get a rope. And they dug through the hard-baked clay and removed some of the willow branches, and then they had to saw off or remove a cedar log. And down below, everybody was muttering and cursing at the mess that they were getting in their eyes. And so they lowered Jesus at the feet of Jesus. They, they lowered Saul to the feet of Jesus. And not a word passes between them. Did you notice that? So you can imagine his eyes locked onto Jesus and Jesus looking at him. And he's waiting for this word. He doesn't need to say a thing. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the word goes to the outside wall and they say through the window as they say, what did he say? What did he say? He said, your sins are forgiven. And they say, seriously? And if you were that paralyzed man lying there with mute appeal, so obvious what you need, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, I think you'd use that ancient Hebrew exclamation which has been passed down to us. Dude... <laughs> 
And Jesus discerns all of this, and then he sees the teachers of the law, and their faces are black with anger, and they start murmuring, and they're saying, this pretender is also a blasphemer, for only God can forgive sins. Now, let's inject ourselves into the story. There are various ways in which paralysis can come to us in the next slide. For this man, it was the physical, but it could be something emotional. It could be something situational. It could be relational. And all of a sudden, that pleasant little valley stream of yours starts jamming with logs, and you discover that life is not as pleasant as you thought it was. We tend to think of our lives as a perfectly round wheel, but if you were to divide the spokes and take the segments in between and actually quantify every area of your life, you might say about uh, your, your money situation, your financial situation, well, I've got a lot of credit card debt and I've got uh, loans to pay off and I don't save much and I really live it up, so you might give yourself there a, just a two for your money. Maybe your career's on hold and all your hopes are not what they meant, so you're only an eight on your career. Gosh, you really like your life, so you're a ten up there. Fun and leisure, yeah, I'm having fun, that's why I got no money. Uh, <laughs> Personal growth and learning, well, I'm a bit stalled because I watch too much TV. Let's put a zero there. <laughs> your significant other, well, your marriage is a bit boring and you don't know how to get it off. And so this wheel, if you look at the next slide, is not perfectly round, but it's actually a very hobbled wheel that gives you a very rough ride. So here comes this log and it jams your river up. And you say, the road, the, the, the road is rutted. I wish somebody would fix the potholes in the road. But a great deal of the issue is that your wheel is so malformed that every jolt of the road goes right up your spine and jars your teeth. And the wheel has got a lot to do with the whole issue. And what makes it even worse is that this wheel, if you look at it from a different perspective, next slide, has got no axle actually. There's something missing right at the center of the wheel. <laughs> it's held together by, shall we call it an O-ring? A very flimsy one. You remember the space, NASA spaceship Challenger, a billion dollar project, failed and those seven astronauts exploded into space because of a faulty o-ring just cost 150 bucks but the whole thing came crashing down because it failed and so there's this big vacuum at the center of life and what we may say is that every one of us is born with this vacuum and it's like a post-traumatic stress, stress syndrome in a spiritual sense. Spiritually, this is the human condition. Just have a look at how it can get triggered. Maybe you get a pink slip 
And there comes the first log, or your doctor uses the dreaded C word, or you find out your spouse is having an affair. Oh my, in that midlife crisis, what a misnomer. Happens to me every seven years on average. <laughs> and every time I've had one, looking back on my life, I've sort of tried to change my circumstances. So I generally stayed about seven years in the churches I served. You're lucky I've been here nine. <laughs> And then you have also the mid-wife crisis, or women have a mid-husband crisis, and that's another story. And that one log, well, here they all come, you see, because if you have a situational one, it has got emotional implications. And the emotional ones then start straining relationships. And in that way, the whole wheel starts falling apart. And we find that these 12 steps of post-traumatic stress syndrome are actually describing the human condition. There's an activifying event if you start here at the bottom, which we've just talked about, causes emotional pain, spiritual and physical pain. Next comes confusion, trying to remember. Can I trust my memory? That happens more and more to me. <laughs> Guilt. Feeling guilty? How responsible am I for this activating event? Am I the cause? What do I do? Shame. Golly, who else knows that I'm such a mess? Your self-worth starts dissolving and you start feeling worthless and then comes the anxiety with mixed episodes. And now fear is forming and PTSD is starting to register and then you go through all the emotions of anger and resentment and you get depressed and then maybe acute anxiety is panic attacks starting to taking over. Wouldn't you say that's a description in general of the human condition spiritually? Wouldn't you say that you have experienced many of these symptoms and some of them are still like a nagging reality in your life right now as you sit there. And they come tumbling in any order. There's fear and then anger and then bewilderment and then another log of anger. And each one of these logs is like a whole forest washing down because it's not just one emotion of fear, but fear builds on fear with other elements, and then you get frustrated, and then the anxiety sets in, and then you feel angry again, and then you're annoyed with yourself and everybody else, and then anger becomes rage, and there's the uncertainty, and oh, the self-loathing that happens to you. It happens to me anyway. And then the boss loathing gave me a pink slip. Who does he think he is, the big egg? And life loathing. You loathe your life and it comes back into anger. And so these logs tumble down and jam your life. And here's your life. This is what it looks like. Now we make the best of that. You know, we adapt. When my uh, hips started giving in, I put off having them changed, and then I started getting pain in my feet. So instead of taking care of my feet, I went and saw uh, 
chiropodist and he gave me prosthetics for my feet and that took care of the pain and so I forgot my hips. But ultimately it was the hips that was the trouble until they were replaced. And when they were, the pain went away. And so you see what we do is we isolate a log back here that's pressing on a nerve and we come to Jesus with that log. Lord, I'm paralyzed. We come with this log here. Lord, I need a job. Gosh, God, I'm going through cancer treatment. Won't you just give me a cure? And we come with all these secondary things, which is what the paralyzed man was doing. And what does Jesus do? Well, he speaks what we think were inane words. He says... Oh, the, just these slides. This is, this, this is how hard it is to isolate and talk about your post-traumatic spiritual uh, stress syndrome. These are actual soldiers from Afghanistan who said, uh, I had this muzzle on with all these wounds and I couldn't tell anybody about them. And sometimes you find yourself saying, I wish, I wish I could have lost a body part so people will see, so they'll get it. He lived the rest of his life with a nightmare, said another, the images, and that's what the military can't fix. There's something in you that nothing can fix. And so you self-medicate. Some go to alcohol, some go to drugs, some go to sex, some become workaholics, they become perfectionists, they, they self-medicate. Some of you, church is a self-medication thing. You're here because you want to feel a bit better about yourself and about life and so on. And all the self-medication is like this here. It can't fix it actually because there's a hollow place in the center. The axle is missing. And what Jesus does is he says these inane words, your sins are forgiven. And they're not quite that inane now, are they? Because these words are the words of reconciliation. They're the words of the axle. And quite rightly do those teachers of the law frown and say, this pretender is also a blasphemer because only God can forgive sin. And Jesus acknowledges that and says, yes, you're right. The real issue in life is forgiveness of sins from God himself. That's going to restore the core of who you really should have been all along and what's missing in you. As a doctor misdiagnoses a serious illness and tells a patient with a sore throat, hey, take an aspirin, sleep it off, call me in the morning. And in the morning, the patient is dead of septicemia. So do we misdiagnose our symptoms, but Jesus doesn't. So don't think that the trigger is what God is going to answer necessarily. And I've learned to pray, and if you came up and prayed with me, my first prayer always would be concerning your state of spiritual mind. And for the God of peace to keep you 
And then I will pray a secondary prayer relating to your, your, um, your presenting problem. And so Jesus adds the axle to the wheel. And he gives a forgiveness that he freely bestows. Let me say three things in conclusion. Number one, next slide. Here the Stephen ministers are. <laughs> they're ready to help you cart off all the logs. And they really are such fabulous people. I think they're the best group in our church because they're so closely knit and they meet and they pray and they talk. Uh, so don't close your heart to the Stephen ministers. You saw who they are. You can connect with them through the leaders I introduced to you. Make sure that you are using this God-given benefit. They are friends like the litter bearers bringing the paralyzed man into the presence of Jesus and having Jesus cure. The second thing I want to say, that like an expert artist, Jesus adds a wash of color to the canvas of life. This wash influences every other miracle that he performs in the gospel. And the wash is what we've just talked about, your sins are your main issue your hollow core is what needs restoring. So every other miracle, in a sense, even Lazarus being raised from the dead is like a temporary miracle because poor old Lazarus, he had to go through it a second time. But the forgiveness of your sins will carry you into eternity with a calm frame of mind and with a joyful ministering spirit. So let's ask ourselves this question. What if the teachers of the law had not murmured and said, this pretender is a blasphemer? And the man lay there, and all he heard from the lips of Jesus was, son, your sins are forgiven. And the murmuring happened, and he said, dude. And then Jesus turned and walked away with his disciples and the crowds went home and the owner tried to fix his roof and his friends carried him home again. Do you think he would have been a happy camper? I want to suggest to you that once he realized the import of what we've been talking about, it would have changed his attitude and his mind in such a way that he would have lived a blessed life. So after all, you and I are more in that picture than we are in take up your bed and walk and go home picture, aren't we? Those miracles are very rare in our day. There's a lot of medical miracles that happen, and we call them miracles, but they're not of the same order and stature of this one, where instantaneously a paralyzed man stood up and went home carrying his bed. 
So I'll close with the story of Ray Hootman. I've got Diane's permission to tell you this story. He had prostate cancer and it came back and he did the Aunt Mary's cockroach thing. He tried everything. We all prayed like mad for Ray to be healed. And the day came when the doctor said, Ray, we can do nothing more for you. You should go into hospice. And I went round to see Ray that, that just after that happened, and his eyes filled with tears. And he said to me, oh, Anton, I don't mind dying, but it's the quality of life. I don't want this quality of life. Oh, Ray, I said, more than one-tenth of the world's population have disabilities and they live rich and fulfilling and abundant lives and they inspire us more than all those healthy dudes out there. So quality, quality is in memories. Quality is in prayer. Quality is in gratitude, in exploring new frontiers of thought and experiencing new waves of emotion. Quality of life is in joy. It's in receiving love from people who want to shower you with it. Quality is in you giving them love. And all of these things you manifest richly. So already you are an inspiration. You see, a week later, about 12 of his friends gathered and we served communion to Ray and he referenced this conversation and there was a joyful radiance about him that was quite, quite phenomenal to see and he blessed all his friends with his love and with his gratitude and he embraced the new emotions that were coming to him and about a week later, the Lord called him home. Eternity is where Jesus has his focus. And so let us pray together. I know the Holy Spirit is stirred among us this morning and maybe you're aware of that hollow center in your life and you're tired of self-medicating and today you'd like to have Jesus speak to your heart and say, your sins are forgiven. If that's the case, I'd like to just pray a general prayer for you and I invite you just to raise your hand and then I'll pray for you. Nothing more. Yes, thank you. I see we'll include you in that prayer. Yes, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Thank you. Just helps you to reach up and identify, Lord, I'm, I'm the needy one. Meet my need today. Yes, thank you. I do see your hand. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes, look there. I've got my hand up too, actually. 
Lord, we bow before you in awe that you discern not only our thoughts, but our real needs. We bring our hollow center to you, and uh, we ask you, dear Lord, speak directly into my heart those powerful words which you as God affirm with your ministry, your sins are forgiven. With a huge sigh of relief, Lord, we let go of all those things that jam our lives and alter the course of their flow and see once again that you are clearing the channels so that we may live a life of joy in your presence. So thank you for your amazing grace. May we celebrate it as never before. In Jesus' name, amen.